0: Let me be perfectly explicit in this podcast. Okay, here it goes. It's Tuesday, January 23rd, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. MPR, Minnesota Public Radio, has put together findings about Garrison Keillor, their news department did. And this provides context and examples beyond Keillor's explanation for why he was jettisoned And let's recall Keeler's explanation. I once touched a woman's shoulders, and they were milky as powder milk. But as Keeler went on, his hand slipped, and he's not used to open back shirts. You know, Lutherans don't usually wear them, so now he's disgraced and fired. That was Keeler's explanation. It's a conundrum, right? An organization doesn't have to, and doesn't want to give more damaging information than it needs to. It's embarrassing to itself. They're under no obligation to provide more details. And also it could be used against them if Keeler sues. The women who were harassed or allegedly harassed, they're under no obligation to come forward. And the man accused of harassment, of course, wants to minimize it and talk about an open back shirt. But now a lot of it is out. It turns out that Garrison Keeler was fired for being kind of an asshole. As opposed to the last 40 years when he ran one of the most successful public radio shows and no one said boo about the fact that he was kind of an asshole. But you see, the assholic nature was diffuse and aimed at all for much of this time. But if you gathered all the asshole tendencies and examples together and you focused this wide array of assholeness onto the current concerns of the moment, then yes, you could come up with some plausible examples of where Keillor really did cross the line into harassment. The headline of the story reporting on Keillor's misdeeds, such as they were, is, for some who lived in it, Keeler's world wasn't that funny. You know, it's so rare that a performer's real life and his character match so exactly. All right, I know, I know. The jokes are easy for some who lived in A Killer's World wasn't funny. Yes, for many who listened to A Killer's World wasn't funny also. I know, they're just so easy. Honestly, here's my take on Prairie Home Companion, the show. I'm glad it existed. Uh, I was a little perturbed by the fact that they would play it four times over the weekend and keep, you know, three other more interesting to my ear voices off the air. But that's what they did. I respected his craft. It was quiet storytelling. This was pre Moth. This was pre Ted. He was one of the few who's really working in that space. It's not my art form, especially how he does it. I feel about Prairie Home Companion. I'll make two examples. One, poetry in the New Yorker. Every once in a while, I'll read one of the poems and it'll hit. But mostly, I either skip them or when I try to read them, uh, that's too weird. I'm not in that mind space. But I'm glad it exists. I would hate if poetry were expunged from The New Yorker. The other example is a podcast like Bitch Sesh. You know this one? It's great. I mean, it's great for what it does. It's two funny, talented women talking about a show that I could live without a deep parsing of. But it's great. It's just not for me. And that's how I feel about Prairie Home Companion. It's not for me. And it spoke to an audience that was underserved. Now someone's going to say, what? He was old and white. That is the audience. But no, it's really not. The audience, the Prairie Home Companion audience, they were getting one of the few examples in all of broadcasting that was quiet and rural and had a relaxed pace. It wasn't in your face. It was very different from all the other entertainment out there, and it was well done. It was fine. You have to respect the craft. There was a great deal of craft involved. You also have to admit that when you read this report about Garrison Keillor, there was a lot of sexism there, possibly harassment. Like in 2009, a subordinate who was romantically involved with Keillor received a check for $16,000 from his production company and asked to sign a confidentiality agreement so that she wouldn't talk about it. She declined to sign and never cashed the check. Strikes me as interesting. It's exactly one-tenth of Trump's payoff to Stormy Daniels. Just shows who knows how to issue hush money and who doesn't. Scumbag real estate tycoons, they know how to do it. Public radio hosts who could do 10 minutes on catch-up bad at hush money. Other things in the report were gross and wrong and should have received censure at the time. Uh, A a woman applied for an internship. He accepted her, but wrote, I'll have to suppress my intense attraction to you, but that can be done. You can't write that. What kind of workplace is that going to lead to? Either she takes the job and everyone's uncomfortable, or she doesn't take the job because of what you wrote. Shouldn't do that. Other details are supposed to rise, I think, to the level of outrage they don't get there for me. Keeler dismissed the work of an underling for the Writer's Almanac. You know that show? This was confirmed by another worker on the show, years apart. Here's uh, the report from Emma Pr. She tells an almost identical account of how Keeler quote, kind of violently crumpled up papers and slammed them into the garbage can to show his dissatisfaction with her work. Another sentence. A common complaint is he would punish his staff with prolonged aggressive silence. Oh, wouldn't everyone in Bill O'Reilly's earshot have loved that punishing treatment? Here's another quote. Some former colleagues say he was as dismissive with men as he was with women. A typical grievance was that Keeler was the sole arbiter of what worked or what didn't work for the shows. As a listener, I was in that same category. I was uncomfortable. I could not understand what worked and what didn't work. And then the NPR report says this. One person who worked on Prairie Home Companion said, you only have to look at the popular segments such as Guy Noir and Lives of the Cowboys to see recurring portrayals of women as saloon floozies or femme fatales, side characters in cowboy and hard-boiled detective dramas. So NPR granted anonymity for someone to point out that Lives of the Cowboys isn't woke. But then there was the limerick. Oh, the limerick. Keeler owns a bookstore. He came in one day and he saw an attractive employee. She was apparently a co-ed at McAllister and he penned these words on the dry erase board. A beauty who goes to McAllister, oh, her face, her limbs, her ballast, her tiny blue kilt and the way she is built could make a petrified phallus stir. Here's the problem with that. It has the word phallus in it. Also, if the phallus is petrified, it kind of mixes the metaphor. I mean, I understand that it's rock hard, but isn't that? Anyway, I'm not going to pursue this, and I'm certainly not going to draw, write it on a dry erase board. I mean, maybe the last line could have something like, she's a masterpiece, like Cook, comma, Alistair. That's much worse. I and mean, the phallus, you know, as, as, in terms of complex rhymes, it's doing its job. It's a ribald limerick, a worker said the store staff feared Keeler's reaction if they were to erase the limerick, so they temporarily covered it with books and a portrait of F. Scott Fitzgerald. This was not noted in the report, but they had a picture of that and one of the books that was covering, and not completely, the Keeler limerick was, Let's Pretend This Never Happened by Jenny Lawson. I've never read the book, but using it to block the view of this limerick might have been Jenny Lawson's greatest contribution to literature ever. Conclusion, and this is my conclusion from reading the piece. Killer made people, women especially, uncomfortable. At 75, he was growing more and more out of step with current workplace mores. So HR did to him what demographic shifts were conspiring to do anyway. Leave my hands covered in calloused fur. No, that's much worse. Forget I said it. On the show today, I spiel about a case where everyone got along. And it was a woman who was uniting them. A woman in a talking stick. An ungendered talking stick. But first, you know, one thing that gets in the way of talking is a swollen tongue, which can come from eating MSG. No, it can't. Dan Pashman of The Sporkful is here to debunk everything about the myths of this sinister ingredient. (laughs) If we knew three things about food that were true growing up, as I did, maybe those three things were something like fat makes you fat, greasy foods will give you pimples, and no MSG. Turns out all of them are pretty much bullshit. The no MSG part, or monosodium glutamate, a common ingredient in Chinese food, is being so bad that no MSG became the unofficial slogan of every Chinese restaurant menu that I ever sampled in the 1980s no MSG was to Chinese restaurant menus as you've tried the rest now try the best was to pizza boxes but Dan Pashman host of the sporkful is here and he's been thinking about MSG he's been chewing it over if you will and he has it's not actually groundbreaking but maybe it'll change your mind about MSG He has a new episode up about MSG and we're going to talk about it hey Dan what's up hey Mike So, monosodium glutamate, in the episode, you break down what it is in layman's terms. What do we need to know about the actual chemical?
1: Well, glutamate occurs naturally. It's in your body right now. It's one of the 23 amino acids you need it to live. The other
0: 22, go. Mm,
1: Pass. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) They they all end in ATE. I can tell you that much. Oh. But yeah, so... It occurs naturally in tomatoes and mushrooms. It's in breast milk naturally. So glutamate is natural. It's in seaweed, where it was first sort of discovered as a food ingredient, and and to our palate, it represents the taste that we call umami, mm-hmm. which is sort of a, a it's essentially a savory flavor. Some people argue that umami is is the fifth flavor. The fifth. There Some are people, four on your tongue: sweet, sour, like bitter, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. um. Some people say no, it's sort of a combination of the four, but it is uh, a wonderful flavor, and glutamate gives you that umami flavor. To make MSG, all you're doing is taking glutamate, which is again natural, and binding it to a salt, sodium, Uh, in order to. One salt. Mono. Yes, Yes. <laughs> in order to make it a powder that you can easily buy and sell like like normal natural glutamate is the liquid. It's hard to package. It's hard to add as a seasoning. So just to make it into something that is easily packaged and shipped and sold and measured and added to foods, you buy it to a salt. So You get this white powder. Why did it become so associated with Chinese food? Well, it well, it is a, a common household ingredient in a lot of Asian cuisines. Uh, and glutamate, the, the umami flavor was first sort of discovered, uh, I think, more than 100 years ago in seaweed by a Japanese researcher. Uh, and so there's an association with glutamate and MSG umami flavors in Asian cuisines. I think that when the American Chinese takeout restaurant began to flourish in a variety of ways, traditional Chinese food was dumbed down and bastardized for American palates we wanted this Chinese food to be super fast and super cheap. Yes. And in order to do that, you need to take a lot of the more complex techniques involved in layering different flavors in Chinese and Asian foods and dumb those down too. Mm -hmm. And one way to get something that approximates that is like, well, if your grandmother used these 15 ingredients in this order and then a teaspoon of MSG, you don't really have the time or the money to do that complicated time-honored process, instead just put a lot more MSG in and hope for the best. As a result of that demand, you saw more
0: MSG being put into American Chinese food. So at the time when Chinese food was flourishing and they were called, you know, chop suey joints, Would you say it was the case that it was over-relying on MSG? I know MSG, and we're going to get to how it got a bad rap, but it is fair to say there was maybe a little too much MSG going on at one point.
1: I honestly can't say for sure. I I don't know, and I'm sure that it varies, would vary from one place to the next. And don't forget, there's more Chinese restaurants in America now than McDonald's. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't make any one statement about all of them. But it's meant to be a flavor enhancer used in moderation. It's possible some were relying on it. Too much. But I, I think that when you talk about people who claim to have a sensitivity to it, and we'll talk more, but but um one theory, and this has not been shown by science, but one theory could be that there's some combination of if a place uses a little too much of it and you are unaccustomed to eating it. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it could provoke a reaction.
0: So people began to tell themselves, and you trace where this really started, this panic, this MSG panic started, that MSG gave them headaches and also swolled their tongues up.
1: Hot flashes, neck pain, headaches, you know, and it all started with one letter that a doctor wrote to the New England Journal of Medicine in 1968. Isn't it great having a monoculture, <laughs> like one thing that right. set this and off? And he said, yeah. you know, when I eat Chinese food, I get these symptoms. Maybe it's the MSG. He didn't say, I, have, I did a study. Yeah. He didn't say, I know for sure. He said, maybe it's the MSG. Someone should look into this. Well, before anyone could really look into it, tons of people came forward and said, yes, yes, me too. Oh, I mean, I don't want to say me too. In that situation. You can't even yeah. say me too. Anymore. I know. Me too is taken. Um, yes, yes. I also feel that way when I eat Chinese food. We got
0: to leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> we got to leave that
1: in. <laughs> There's no hashtag. Right, yeah. right. Um, and. This hysteria took hold. There were some bad scientific experiments done where either they told people in advance we're about to give you something with MSG in it. Yeah, so, of course, yeah. everyone had a reaction. Oh, and by the
0: way, don't worry. It's monosodium glutamate. Right. And they actually hired the band to go bump, bump, bump. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> right. There were other studies where they would inject massive quantities of MSG under the skin of a yeah, mouse. that's not how I eat my Chinese food. Right, first. nobody is – and yes, newsflash, the mice had a reaction, you know.
0: Do you want a dumpling course, a soup course, an injectable under the skin <laughs> right, course? Exactly. Yeah, like, only if it's massive amounts. Right,
1: inject massive amounts of kale under your skin. You're not going to yeah. be feeling
0: too good either. hmm
1: so, but this science took hold and there were some, some sort of charlatan doctors who got book deals out of it and 60 Minutes did a, in retrospect, very irresponsible piece. And, uh, and this was around the time, you know, the late 60s and into the 70s and 80s, when there was a big backlash against processed foods, mm-hmm. quote unquote, chemicals and additives in our foods, which obviously, you know, yes, there are some processed foods and chemical additives in our foods that are legitimately bad, but there was such a hysteria that anything that was created through any man-made process sort of got swept up yes. in that hysteria. Oh,
0: it's a bunch of things going on. One, we're not that used to the taste to begin with. Two, the exoticness of the cuisine to us. You know, this isn't talking about MSG in American food. Three, I think the the label, monosodium glutamate, it sounds extra chemically. And four, the power of suggestion that was happening everywhere. Right. We as humans are pretty ill-adept at uh, battling back those factors.
1: That's right. And the other big factor, which you sort of touched on, which we get into in detail in this episode of The Sporkful, is xenophobia and flat-out racism. You talk about—there was a perception, especially then. uh, I'm sure you heard people joke about it when you were a kid as did I. Like, who knows what they're serving in these Chinese restaurants? Maybe it's cats. Maybe it's dogs. Yeah. Um, There was this idea that these sneaky Asians were putting something in the food that we didn't understand and therefore must be bad for us. And Uh, the fact (laughs) is— And and I talked to a Vietnamese chef. I talked to a Chinese-American food writer in this episode, and they said, we grew up eating MSG all the time. Yeah. One of them said... No Chinese people have any problem with MSG. You can go all over Asia, and it is a common household ingredient. You will find it on the table in many restaurants where you can sprinkle it in yourself. And the idea that people here are so freaked out about it, more than anything, just strikes
0: them as stupid. You said that MSG was maybe a cheaper, quicker way, as, as much as it's on the table. Maybe it's not the most artisanal way to get the umami flavor in the food. So that seems to me that we are at cross-currents. In terms of acceptance of this rather simple chemical, has there been an embrace of MSG or is it more like, well, we know MSG isn't bad, but what you're really going to want is the uh, hardcore mommy taste. I think that it is making a comeback. I think that people are starting to understand
1: that there was all this junk science. And just to be clear, I want to warn you, Mike, right now, you're going to get letters about this segment. Oh, right. yeah, don't worry. You're, you're I going get, to get the every...
0: ASMR segments. I do think... <laughs> Anytime you tell people that this thing they think they experience or that maybe some tiny percentage of people legitimately experiences bullshit, they're not going to like it. Right, right. and yeah. th- th- there is no reliable
1: scientific evidence that anyone has a real sensitivity to MSG when they don't know that they're eating it. Right. Maybe there is a tiny handful who have a legitimate sensitivity, just as there are people who who can't eat onions or chocolate or a million other very common, generally safe foods. So I, I do think that as this information gets out there and as... Asian cuisines become, for lack of a better word, more authentic representations of Asian cuisines cross into the mainstream American food culture. I think that there's a deeper understanding and people are also willing to pay more for those foods and they have a better understanding of the work and the craft that goes into creating them. And I think that all those things are coming together to help thaw that uh, that resistance.
0: Do Chinese restaurants, maybe not the cutting-edge Chinese restaurants or the guys who are celebrity chefs, and we'll go on the sporkful, but does the common Chinese restaurant, the best Chinese restaurant in, you know, your town, suburb of Kansas City, are they now bold enough to not have to say no MSG on the menu? I I,
1: I think it probably varies from one to the next. I mean, I, I haven't seen exact research on it. My, my sort of anecdotal from working on this story was that... Um, some of them say no MSG and mean it. Some of them say MSG and put the MSG in anyway. Yeah. And some of them are cooking with
0: MSG and don't say one way or the other. Right. The most difficult thing to do is to use MSG and probably not tell people to use well, it. Well, and that's what I do so, at my
1: house. Okay.
0: Yeah. And I talk about this in the episode. People are very upset.
1: Look, when I have new guests over to my home, I, I always ask, does anyone have any restrictions, allergies, et cetera? If you were to say to me... I can't have MSG. I'm, I have migraines or whatever. I'm deathly allergic. I wouldn't put MSG in the food, right? E- even though the science is not on your side,
0: right? By the same token, if you have someone who's kosher over your house, you don't think you know mixing some cheese or some dairy with a meat is going to kill them. But, you know, it's their belief. So it's more of a belief system. Right. More like out of respect for your mm-hmm. beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if I asked you, are there any foods
1: you can't eat and you did not say MSG, yeah. I would probably cook you something because I, I put MSG in many things that I cook. I would probably put the MSG in your food. But then I wouldn't. If you said, oh, this is delicious. What is it? I would list you the ingredients. I would not say there was MSG in it because then immediately your head would start pounding.
0: Why were you criticized for that?
1: I didn't make it 100% clear in the podcast that I would not give it to someone if they said it was their allergy. Right. I just sort of said, look, if you come to my house for dinner, I'm probably going to serve you something with MSG in it. And I'm probably not going to tell you. Even if it's ice water. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, what's coming up on The Sporkful and Live Spork, or what do you ask Mimi?
1: Oh, well, we, 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 we've we been doing a live series called Ask Mimi. It's going to be turned into a podcast. It's an advice show starring Mimi Sheridan. She's this amazing 92-year-old legendary food critic. She gives advice on food and life. we got shows coming up at Union Hall. It's going to be amazing. We did an episode of The Sporkful recently. Um, we featured a woman who's been struggling in recovery from an eating disorder. We tracked her progress over the course oh. of a year. She recorded audio journals for us, and, and uh, I learned a lot from speaking with her. And also we had this sort of interesting side note about um, the role that food media and careers in food, the correlation between that and eating
0: disorders. And there's some interesting research on that that we also got into. You really do a lot of stuff around eating, just the culture of eating. You should get a James Beard Award. You do things that are not even about how food tastes. You do things about culture. You do things about profession. And to pay you a compliment, I don't think you do it out out of obligation. I think you're you personally are genuinely interested in everything about food and minutia.
1: Yeah. No, thank you. And I, and I feel like at this point we can kind of do a sporkful episode about. Almost anything. Like yeah. there, there's a way to any interesting topic through food. And I like getting there through food because it's kind of an interesting creative challenge. And it's also right. like it's so accessible. Like when you start off talking about a sandwich, everyone knows what you're talking about.
0: In, the, in my grocer's freezer, I saw being offered fried Twinkies. Mm. What do you think of that as a non-state fair, non-making it in a fryer, but taking it from the freezer and serving fried Twinkies?
1: I'm not totally opposed to fried foods, yeah. But I kind of feel like I mean, a Twinkie, just a straight Twinkie, right out of the container, out of the plastic wrapper, is already so good. Uh, I want, I want to, I want to work on a dish. I want to make a uh, uh, Twinkie
0: Trace Leches. Ooh. That'd work. Right? Yeah. And the thing about a Twinkie, I once saw a Spy Magazine story from the 80s where they tried to ask the top chefs to make a Twinkie. You can't. A Twinkie is a Twinkie. Right. It's not a yellow sponge cake with filling. It's right. just a Twinkie. Right. It's its own thing. Yes. And whatever badness right. there is to it, that's the part. That's also part of the Twinkie. Right. And other foods in this category, Captain Crunch. <laughs> Cap'n Crunch. Right. I can't justify Cap'n Crunch as anything except this food called Cap'n Crunch. And people will want to tell me, well, it reminds you of your childhood, not really Really, I wasn't served it or it evokes something. Actually, it's good. There's like a, go- a, a horrible mouthfeel goodness to it that if this were a delicacy in another part of the world and it were seen as you were seen as adventuresome for eating it or cool for knowing about it, no one would question what Cap'n Crunch actually tastes like. You know like if it cuts the roof of your mouth? It does a little bit, but that's part of it. You know, but, but do you you have a masochistic streak? Nah, I just feel like you should feel there's like some pain, some gain. (laughs) Um, on the other hand, people will make the same case about an Oreo. And I just think an Oreo is a crap cookie.
1: Oreo is not great. I mean, double stuff is halfway decent, but the ratio yeah. is off. Yeah. You, you got you to gotta remove one of the two cookies and then eat it f- frosting side down on your tongue and just the other extra cookie you got to just give to the dog, and then it's halfway decent.
0: Eating things down, the good side down on the tongue, when you die, that <laughs> will be your epitaph. That's first line of your obit. Yeah. But it's true. It makes yeah. a big difference. All right. Thank you, Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Podcast. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. The Republican base has had it with McConnell. Liberals are pretty miffed at Schumer. And it also seems on a personal level, Schumer doesn't like McConnell. McConnell doesn't like Schumer. Of course, every senator calls every other senator my good friend, but it's not true. It's just not true. Al Franken likened Ted Cruz to the guy who microwaves fish at the office. But really, where were Franken's friends, even the Democrats, especially the Democrats, who turned on him and ousted him after embarrassing photos emerged. The Senate is rife with rules and regulations and also egos and a heightened sense of importance. Only one woman can tame it. Like Thor with his hammer, Mjolnir comes Susan Collins with her stick, the talking stick. So Democrats and Republicans assembled, oh, that's also like the Avengers, assembled in Susan Collins' office. And they all wanted to talk at once, but they couldn't talk without holding the stick. And this is where they negotiated the end of the shutdown. She would pass the stick around and whoever had the stick would give their ideas and they decided shutting down the government stupidly for 69 hours or however much it was wasn't great because of the stick. I'm going to cite the stick. As Susan Collins did, she held the multicolor beaded stick and talked, because it is the talking stick, to ABC News. Senator Heidi Heitkamp a few years ago gave me an African talking stick that is used by a tribe that is in Kenya and in the, uh, in the Sudan region. And it is used by the tribe to control the debate when they have meetings. Sometimes things went wrong. Big egos, geriatric senators more used to walking sticks than talking sticks. At one point, Lamar Alexander takes the stick, tosses it. Was it in anger? Was it in comity? Who knows? Different reporting would have you believe different things. Tosses it to Mark Warner. Boom. Chips a glass elephant. So wrote Nostradamus. And the stick shall smite the betusked beast of the east, and the great chamber shall shudder and then pass a continuing resolution until February 8th. Talking sticks, good idea. I went to order one online. I'm not kidding. Maasai talking stick, $35 plus shipping. This beautiful and useful piece is a talking stick. It's made by the Maasai people of Kenya. The Maasai are an ancient people, although not the current ones, who are known for their intricate beadwork. The talking stick is an ancient tool of communication. And there, under the talking stick, in the people also bought section, Maasai Spear. Gives the talking stick just a little more oomph. Ironically, it was in the service of ending a shutdown, touched off in part when the president referred to the continent of Africa as containing shithole countries, that a totem from Africa was used. It aided in the peace. Can we take a talking stick to the president's Twitter account? You know who else needs a talking stick? And and these people are so close to Africa, just right across the Red Sea. Saudi Arabia and Qatar, from the New York Times. In September at the normally soporific meetings of the Arab League in Cairo. You speak for yourself, New York Times. Saudi and Qatari diplomats exchanged barbed epithets like rabid dog and heated accusations of treachery and even cruelty to camels. When I speak, you shut up, yelled Qatar's Minister of State for Foreign Affairs. No, you're the one who should shut up, said his Saudi counterpart. I have the audio. Let me, let me translate, this is real. Uh, uh, Qatar, Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, speaks uh, first, calls the Saudi, quite threatening, but I don't think he's actually capable. Saudi, no, I am more capable. No, you aren't. No, no, no. When I'm speaking, be quiet. No, you be quiet. Sir, sir, please learn. Mr. Chairman, giving the mic to Qatar. Once more, you will force us to respond. He's finger jabbing. I'm not trying to say anything against you, but allowing Qatar to talk again We'll make the four countries respond. If you want us to stay till the morning... I don't mind. I don't mind either. Okay, that that's, that's something. But what about that part with the camels? You can't just throw that out there. Camels came into it? Yes, remember we reported on this. Due to the spat between Qatar and the Saudis, camels were barred from their usual grazing areas. Poor camels. Camels don't care for you, you human... You, uh, you Qatari or Saudi, they're all the same to camels. They hate all of us. They want to kick at us and spit at us. So I dove further, and it turns out what the uh, Qatari's Minister of State for Foreign Affairs said was, even the animals were not spared. You sent them out savagely, he said, referring to the thousands of camels left stranded on the border between Qatar and Saudi Arabia after borders were closed. All right, that exchange happened in September. So here we are in January. And guess what? There's more breaking camel news. It is about a camel beauty contest the Saudis are putting on. We, we reported on past camel beauty contests, but this one comes rife with scandal. The camels on show here are being judged on the size of their lips, cheeks, heads, and knees. And competition is fierce. So fierce, in fact, that a dozen camels have been disqualified because their handlers used Botox to make them more attractive. Botox. Botox on a camel. You could put lipstick on a pig, and it's still a pig, but if you put Botox on a camel, that is grounds for dismissal. I tell you, it's a crazy world we live in. All I could do is sit back and marvel. Here, you hold the talking stick. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre bien When called upon, he will offer his opinions only if he is in possession of the opining expired bottle of Excedrin PM. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, makes meetings run smoother just by passing around the brainstorming sea lion carcass. Steve Lichtai didn't get to be executive producer of Slate podcasts by not using the conjecture pot roast, the gist. You've heard my thoughts. Now it's time for yours. Email us at thegist at slate.com or facebook.com slash slategist. Be sure to include how to pronounce your name and a picture of you posing with the listener feedback, booberry Cereal. It's actually going to happen. I, I know it will. Oom peru de peru peru, and thanks for listening.